Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Beginning with the feeding of the 5,000, John chapter 6, I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. And Brian said, oh, you're teaching again? And, uh, and it occurred to me that uh, I don't think we've explained why I'm teaching. Um, so I, th- I think every face I see are people who've been in this church for a while. So you know that we have elders. Bob is our senior uh, teaching pastor. And when he's not here, one of the elders fills in to teach. 
sometimes we teach when he is here, and uh, Bob, um, Bob needed to get a lot of work done on the sun porch addition he's doing on his house. Plus, they, took, they were going to take a vacation, which they did week before last Sunday. So I'm teaching two weeks in a row, so he doesn't have to spend time preparing to teach um, and can try to make a lot of progress, hopefully making good progress. That's why the Lowe's story. He's been going and buying stuff and working on his sun porch. I, I do want to say before I start into the passage that I'm just really glad to see Joe and Anthony and Katie and, and um, Zach and Nadia. Um, Gail and I, I, don't th- I think this is the first Sunday since like mid to early April that you guys and we have been here at the same time. We've been gone a bunch of weekends, and I've seen you on Zoom in that time frame, but we haven't actually been here. And Joe, I appreciate your, your testimony this, this morning. A mention of Jesus healing the sick is going to happen in our passage. Uh, in fact, you heard that as Chuck was reading. Okay, let's see. The slide that, that we've been using in every message as we go through the book of John, just to remind everybody the twofold purpose of the Gospel of John. Uh, John is, is majoring on the deity of Jesus, the Son of God who took on flesh in order to become the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And that then feeds into teaching on the unity of the church. And as the church is unified, that helps others, Bob's got down here, that we may be one so that the world may know. So that the world may know what? So that the world may know, looping back up, that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, One thing I'd like to just say about this, when you look at the church globally, this this sort of way it's supposed to work, we, we could be discouraged because... The church is not unified globally. There are so many denominations, so many fragments, even within a given denomination or way of thinking as a certain church, there can be wide variation. But I take comfort in that we, as a local church, as we are unified, there are individuals who then get pointed to the Son of God. So this loop still works in local churches and local communities, even if it's frustrating to look at the church writ large on the global scale. And we're not the only ones. There are many good churches in this world. And um, so anyway, that's big theme. Jesus feeding the multitude. Um, it starts in... Ch- in Chapter 6, verse 1, with after these things. So I'm using that for a little background just to review. What has just happened is chapter 5. Last week I taught on the end of chapter 5. The beginning of that was Bob covered two weeks ago. Jesus has healed the man who'd been sick for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. And he did it on the Sabbath, which caused a big stir. And the part that I was teaching on last week all flowed out of that big stir where Jesus was teaching on his equality with God. And he was also, as part of that, was drawing out the authority he has to give life, the authority over resurrection and over judgment given to him by the Father. We talked about that last week. And so what all has happened between chapter 5, verse 47, and chapter 6, verse 1? Chapter 5 was in Jerusalem. 
chapter 6 is now, lots of things have happened in Galilee, and this is going to take place in Galilee. And it's actually been about a year that has passed. We're going to come back later to why John puts this back to back. It's interesting to think about. But a lot has transpired in Galilee that's covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke during that time frame. And by the way, when I say a year has passed, I'm going to do this now because otherwise I'll forget. I don't have a slide about it. But if you look at verse 4 where John says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. One of the ways that we know Jesus' ministry was more than two years long, and people say it's three years, how do we know that? Well, one way is John's dropping in for us through his gospel mentions of the Passover. He mentions it in John 2, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus goes to Jerusalem. It's between the uh, miracle of turning the water to wine, Jesus' first sign in the book of John. He goes to Jerusalem at Passover, and that's where he ends up uh, talking to Nicodemus while he's in Jerusalem. Now we have another feast, another Passover of the Jews at hand. So this, is, this would be another year. So where John 5 takes place in that year, we don't know exactly. Because it's not the same trip to Jerusalem. Because Jesus, Jesus leaves and he goes to, through Samaria and speaks to the woman at the well. Other stuff happens in Galilee. He ends up back in Jerusalem for chapter 5. But now when he's up here... This is where you can, you can kind of date it. The next time, so John is going to a couple times talk about Feast of the Jews, but not call it Passover. One of them he names, the Feast of Booze gets named at one point. Um, but the, the three times he mentions the Feast of Passover, it's chapter 2 right here. And then it, it, it's starting in, I think, 11, 11 or 12. It gets mentioned a bunch through the end of the chapter where that's all about the last Passover, uh, the, the, the week where Jesus is crucified. So you've got at least three Passovers, which means at least two full years, plus the time before that first one that he mentions. Uh, so at least two plus some of ministry. So I, I just throw that out as a tidbit, because sometimes you might wonder, what, what do we base it on that he had a three-year ministry? So lots of things that happened in Galilee, and there's two things relevant to us as we go into John 6 that had happened in Galilee since chapter 5 ended. John the baptizer was executed. We know this from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In, um, in Matthew's account, right as he's starting to talk about the feeding of the 5,000, he's explaining why Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee in a boat. It says, when Jesus heard it, talking about uh, John the, the baptizer being executed, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place. And it actually goes on to say Jesus was, uh, he wanted to be alone. Now, alone there, I think, means with his disciples be alone when you put it together with the other accounts. The second thing that had happened is Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out to preach and heal. They had gone out in twos to different cities and villages in Galilee, and they returned at about the same time Jesus heard about John's death. In Mark and Luke, you can read this, and both of them there's a passage about the disciples being sent out in two. And here I'm talking about the 12 disciples being sent out in pairs. There's another time where a larger group gets sent out, 70 of them in pairs. So that has happened. You can read about it in those two passages. And then both of them talk about, they give a summary about what happened to John. So the item number one about John being executed is kind of integrated in, in their accounts. They don't talk, when they end the passage about John the Baptist, they don't say that 
anything about when Jesus heard about it. We only get that from Matthew. But when they end that, they say that the disciples returned. So we have the disciples returning at about the same time. Um, Yeah, so we have a wealth of testimony to this miracle. All four Gospels write about it. It's on the note sheet, too, in addition to here, these passages. And, And for me... Well, I'm going to give you an example, and then I, I was going to jump ahead. I'll say, say this in a minute, but let me give you an example. So, Matthew tells us that when Jesus heard it, this is the same verse I mentioned a minute ago, he departs by boat to a deserted place by himself. Only Matthew and Mark actually mention that he departed by boat. Uh, that might come up here in Luke. So, in Mark, the multitude saw them departing. Many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. Luke says the multitudes knew it. Luke had said that Jesus departed and went to Bethsaida. And, and the multitudes knew it and they followed. No, no mention of the Sea of Galilee here. And, and so from Luke's account alone, you might think he was walking. You don't know that he went by boat. But from Matthew and Mark, you know that he went by boat. From John, it's, you know he went by boat because he said he crossed the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't mention a boat. But the first two actually mention a boat. And then in John's account, a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. The reason I mention this example as a starting example of how we have information from four witnesses is that it largely lines up, but one or two of them give us details that the others don't. And it enriches the whole thing by seeing what the witnesses say. Now, the point I want to draw out here is that the multitudes heard it, and they followed him. And even according to Mark, some of them are there when he arrives. So I want to show you a few pictures. This comes from Google Maps. Um, Capernaum's up here. Chorazin's up here. A location for Bethsaida is right here, which is a traditional location. I'm going to talk a little bit more about how that's a little bit up in the air, whether that's really the best Seda of the Bible. But those three cities, by the way, are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, in both Matthew and Luke, these are the three cities that Jesus talks about when he says, if the miracles that had been performed in you... Oh, wait, wait. If the miracles that performed in you, in the case of Chorazin and Bethsaida, he says, if those had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he says of Capernaum... Same thing, if the signs and miracles had happened in you, if those had happened in Sodom, of Sodom and Gomorrah, if those had happened in Sodom, it would still be here because they would have repented. So there's three of the cities. Um, And and so all of what we're reading about is taking a place in this top part of the Sea of Galilee. Let's see. Okay, I got a couple of pictures. This comes from... HolyLandSite.com. I was just Googling stuff to see pictures uh, of the Sea of Galilee at the top end. This picture, let me go back here. This picture, I think, is from about this Ramat here looking across this way. And so here you're seeing a picture of what the Sea of Galilee looks like and the shoreline. And so this part here, the slow part, is where the Jordan River is flowing in. That traditional location for Bethsaida would be over this hill on the other side of it. And this is the southern shoreline as you come down that eastern shore, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Yeah, so 
This is from the other way, from up at Bethsaida, the traditional location, looking back. And the, one of the reasons I'm showing you this is because in John 6, verse 3, it says, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. The other three accounts don't mention a mountain. They just talk about he arrives, meets the crowd, starts ministering to them, and then he feeds the 5,000. In, in the Greek... I don't have this on a slide, but in the Greek, the word for mountain is oros. I'm probably saying that very badly wrong. It means mountain, mount, or hill. And so I need a volunteer. Who would be willing to read a verse for me? And can we take the microphone to whoever reads? Zach, I see Zach's hand. So, Zach, I want you to actually read two. Turn first to Matthew 5, verse 14. While Zach's getting there, so you're seeing the Sea of Galilee. We're looking from the north, from the traditional location of Bethsaida, down, down towards the sea. And you can see how you got flat land and then you got hills. And back over here might even be what we might call a mountain. Now, some hills are not what we would call mountains. We think of mountains as, as, as the, uh, the Rockies, you know. But um, are you there, Zach? Okay, so read Matthew 5.14 to us. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so it gives light. Okay, that, that verse, a city set on a hill, that's the same word, on a hill. Uh, turn back a page to Matthew 4 and read verse 8. Now, before he reads this, this is an example of how the writers in the New Testament using the Greek can make sure we know it's a really big mountain versus a hill. Read Matthew 4, verse 8 for us. Again, the devil takes him up to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So that word mountain is the same word as over here in John 6, verse 3. But there's three Greek words there. Uh, very in English is one Greek word. High in English is one Greek word. Mountain is another Greek word. So they have a way to drive that home. When it's the word by itself, we don't really know. Is it a hill like this? Is it a mountain like that one? I think I got a bigger one that might. Over here, you're looking this way and you got that big one over there. We don't really know. So these would all qualify for what that word means. So you can picture Jesus and his disciples arrive on the shoreline somewhere around here going south on the eastern side. And they encounter the crowd. And as he's uh, healing and teaching, he works his way up a mountain. And they're on, this, on the sides of the hill. The people are all spread out on the slopes. Uh, John actually tells us that there was lots of grass. So we get to know they were kind of comfy when they all sat down because he throws in that tidbit. Okay, last uh, I think last picture. So this, it's covered up by the Zoom box up there, but that, best, that traditional best Seda location is up in there. And uh, it's like a mile up, up from the Sea of Galilee itself. It's about, you can see yeah, right about there. Uh, it's about a mile up there. And so it would fit that fishermen could go up the river and come to that city. So it's not that that's necessarily a bad location, but there's another one that has been being excavated uh, starting in 2015 through 2019. I think COVID messed them up in 2020. They're, every year they have an excavation season. 
And they're finding uh, of a lot of stuff here that makes them think this might actually be the best Seda of Jesus' time. Both of them have a whole lot of fishing-related uh, artifacts that they found. Both of them have Roman coins and stuff that date it to the right period. Um, so my point in all this is Bethsaida has two possible locations. And actually, where the miracle happened, we're not completely sure. If I go back to here, um, I'm going to get back to this a little bit later near the end of the message. But it really, it could have been anywhere from about here on down towards this Ramat area down in here. Somewhere along that shore is where the miracle takes place, and up on one of these hills like you're seeing here. Okay, let's go on. Oh, this is a picture that um, I got actually from Child Evangelism Fellowship for Good News Club. I thought I'd gotten it for Bob, but it turns out it came from them through Bob for something we were doing. And this looks like a higher mountain than what... Uh, well, this is, the point of this is to let you see it from the perspective of being down at water level looking up at the, at the hills. And I'm not sure if this is a mountain right where I was showing you the other pictures or if it's a little further down to the south. Tiberius? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is a village on the side of the mountain. So, yeah, so this is a, it's a, it's a city. This is a modern picture. Why do I not have a picture for you of what it looked like in Jesus' time? Because they didn't have cameras back then. So I can't give you a picture of that. Yeah. All right. So, so we have a wealth of witnesses. To me, this account, and there's a few others where you have all four given to you. It, it's, it's almost like a car wreck where you have witness on each corner. And so, Hunter, does that make your life easier or harder if there's a bunch of witnesses? It depends. It depends. Yeah. So, do the witnesses always tell the truth? Not always. Yeah. Well, we don't have that part to worry about. These are witnesses inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they give different details. And so, I'm going to go through, well, I'm going to go through a few questions and sprinkle in the stuff from each of them as I go. Before I do that, how many of you have seen the movie Hoodwinked? Animated movie. Some of you have. So the basic plot is that Little Red Riding Hood has, you know, does her thing and meets the wolf. But the forest police investigate trying to figure it out. And so they have to haul in and interview Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf, Granny, and another bystander who really had nothing to do with it but was there. And so that's the plot, and I love the movie because of the plot. The animation is not so great, but it's a great plot. That's what's happening. we got a bunch of witnesses, and they're all telling us what they saw and heard. So uh, I just said that. Oh, what do we do? What do we do when we have multiple accounts, multiple witnesses of the same account? What do we do with that? Believe it all. Just believe it all may not understand how it fits together. I'm going to show some fitting together, but just, it's God's word. Believe it all. Okay, why did Jesus and the disciples go across the lake? John doesn't tell us that. Yeah. Jesus has heard about, Matthew says Jesus heard about John's death. 
And so you have sort of between the lines the the implication that Jesus wants to get alone to pray. Mark and Luke say that the disciples had just returned from a period of ministry. They had been sent out in twos, which is intimidating. That was the first time they probably did that. And Jesus had given them authority both to preach and to heal. They had been casting out demons. They had been healing people of sick. They had been busy. It was probably not a vacation. They were really busy. And in Mark and Luke's account, it reads like Jesus wants them to have some time away to rest. And so the conclusion... Well, Jesus was seeking some time away for he and the disciples, probably due to the combination of hearing this news about John and the fact that the disciples have just returned from a busy period of ministry. So we can take it all. What did Jesus and the disciples do before mealtime? So in John's account, we're not really told when in the day this happened. But all three of the other witnesses are universally telling us, well, some jumping slightly ahead. Matthew and Mark tell us, first of all, that Jesus felt compassion for the crowd when he sees them. But um, Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus was healing their sick. uh, Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them things, but doesn't tell us what. Luke tells us that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So what do we do with this? Let's just put it all together. Jesus felt compassion for the crowds, and he healed their sick and taught them many things about the kingdom of God. Makes sense. Why did the crowds go around the lake to follow Jesus? This is one where we can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, and just we can read into it and say, oh, I know the answer to that. He was teaching wonderful things, and he was healing people. So they want to follow him. But that's us reading into it. John actually tells us, verse 2, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were deceased. Which actually makes me pause. Because I start out saying it's because of the healing, the miracles, and the amazing teaching. John doesn't say it's for the amazing teaching. And that gets driven home later in John 6, after the part I'm covering. And the part that Bob will be in next week. They want the signs and miracles. The, the teaching is not necessarily resonating with all of them yet. Yeah. Okay, what time of day was the meal? In John's account, he mentions that it's evening when the disciples go down to the sea and get in the boat. But he hasn't told us anything else. Matthew says it was evening. Mark says the day was now far spent. Luke says, when the day began to wear away. When you see all three of those, it's pointing you to the end of the day, even though John hasn't told us that. Apart from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might have thought it was lunch when he did this, or early in the afternoon. And then later in the day, when it got to be evening, the disciples went down to the boat. But it's clear that it was, it was late afternoon, twilight, early evening. The, the Greek word for evening here. Uh, from what I looked up, seems to mean a several-hour window of from like 6 p.m. to dark. And since it's at the time of the Passover, dark's not as late as in the summer, but it's not as short as in the winter. So we've got, you know, an hour or two type time frame in there. And the meal apparently happened in that early part of evening, let's say, and then later part of evenings when they go down to the boat. Whose idea was it? That the people needed food. Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
all say that the disciples came to Jesus, and this is Matthew's account. This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But John tells us that Jesus said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Conclusion? Question mark. So, I'm going to give you how I put it together. And I'm going with Jesus. I always go with Jesus as the one taking initiative. He knows what he's... What was that? How did John say it? He himself knew what he would do. I go with that. He knew what he was going to do. But how do we then put all of the conversation together? Well, Jesus says to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, this is a test for Philip. Did Philip pass the test? Probably not. It's interesting. We talked, Bob talked, and I referred to it last week. Bob talked two weeks ago. The 38-year, the guy who'd been sick 38 years, sitting there at the pool of Bethesda, when Jesus says, do you want to get well? He doesn't answer the question. He starts talking about how the logistics are so impossible. This follower of Jesus does the same thing. He does, Philip, bless his heart, he doesn't answer the question. He, he says, he starts talking about the logistics, how much money it would take. I, I'm going to come back to Philip in the test in a minute, but uh, a little bit later. But this is something worth us thinking about. If we are followers of Jesus, we should expect that there's going to be tests. And Jesus is testing him, not aside in a classroom, not in a church building, hear a message and let's have a quiz. It's in the midst of ministry. Jesus is in the midst of teaching about the kingdom of God and healing. I think one of those accounts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, says all they're sick, has that phrase in there. He's healing all of them that are coming to him with infirmities, with diseases. And... So they're busy. But in the midst of that, Jesus sees the crowd, realizes it's, they're going to be hungry. And he's combining their need, what he intends to do, and one of his disciples' heart, mind, character. The growth of this disciple. He's fusing all that together. And he's training, testing. He's testing, but testing is in the bigger picture of training his disciple in the midst of ministry. Boy, is that relevant to us. If you, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, we should expect that. It'll play out different for every one of us, but we should expect that. Um, okay, so Jesus says that. Philip then says to Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone may have a little. That's what I was talking about. He goes to logistics. Then I'm, I'm proposing that some time passes. Jesus continues teaching and healing. I've got a very important caveat here. This is my conjecture. The Bible doesn't say it. I think it's very important when we speculate as teachers, which is okay to do sometimes, because Scripture leaves room for that sometimes. But we need to make a distinction between our speculation and what the Word of God says. God's Word doesn't say it. As you read John, it sounds like it just flows naturally into the next part. I'm proposing that a little bit of time passed. 
How much time? I don't know. I got two ways I can go with this. One is that Jesus sees the, the big crowd. I mean, when you're reading John's account, it sounds like they've already gone up on the mountain and then the crowd's coming. From the other accounts, I think it probably how I'd put it all together. They arrived by boat. There's some crowd there. There's more people still coming. I forgot to show you on that picture. I forgot to show you. From Capernaum over to uh, the mouth of the Jordan River, which is not quite over to Bethsaida, is two miles by boat. Yeah, I have another slide coming up, so I'll show you at the end. If you were to go around by land, it was about three miles. Now, if the miracle's happening further down the shore, you've got to add a few more miles. But at two, two miles to cross and three miles to go around, you could easily picture that as they're going by boat, they're seeing the crowds on the shore running or walking fast or whatever. So they arrive. There's some crowds there. There's more crowds surely still coming. Lots of people coming. I, I haven't said how much is a multitude. How much is a multitude in this, this account? 5,000? 5,000 plus. One of the accounts, I think it's Matthew, points out that there were also women and children. If there was one woman and one child per man, that would be 15,000. Don't know if it was that many, you know. But 5,000 plus, it's thousands. So I went with multitude instead of he feeds the 5,000. But this is a big crowd coming. I could see Jesus starting to minister to them. And he and his disciples work their way up the hill. And he speaks about to Philip about this. And then he continues ministering. So it could have been earlier in the day. If it's earlier in the day where there's several hours more of ministry, of healing and teaching that's going on, Philip's got a long time to chew on this. He's been given an assignment. <laughs> and I can picture Philip talking to the other disciples. Man, Jesus asked me this. What are we going to do? And they have coalesced in an opinion by the end of the day. But I can also see a short time frame. This could have been just like two or three minutes. He says this to Philip. Philip turns around to the disciples. And I can just see impetuous Peter. Feed all these people. What are you talking about? Let's go tell the Lord. He can't do this. And so they march over and tell him. Either way, whether it's been afternoon for Philip to work on his assignment or it's just real quick like that where Philip turns around and says, he told me this. Either way, you then have the disciples coming and saying, Lord, send the multitudes away. Let them go where they can go out into the surrounding villages and cities and find and buy food to eat. Luke even adds where they can buy lodging. So then Jesus says, you give them something to eat. In a couple of the accounts, he says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, this is the answer I propose is how Philip could have passed the test. If when Jesus said, where should we buy bread that these may eat? If Philip had pondered it a second and said, well, Lord, you can feed them. I think Jesus, this is total speculation, but I think Jesus probably would have said something to Philip. That would have been equivalent to what he says to Peter when Peter says, you are the son of God, the Christ, the Christ, the son of God. I got those backwards. But he tells him, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood didn't give this to you. I, I think I think that's how the test could have been passed. But they don't get it yet. And I wouldn't probably have gotten it either in their shoes. 
So then Mark tells us that the disciples say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? It's leaked to the other disciples, what Philip has already said. Or maybe this is Philip again. And then Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go see. From John's account, we don't know that it's actually Jesus who says, go see how much food you got. But that's what he told them. And so then Andrew comes back. There's a lad here. He has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus says, make the people sit down. And we're told in one of the gospel accounts, they sat down in groups of 50. John, I mentioned this earlier. It's wonderful, the details. John lets us know there's lots of grass, so it's comfortable to sit down. I added in the comfort part, but lots of grass on those slopes. And then Jesus, after the miracle, says, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So, moms, if you ever want to teach your kids not to waste stuff, you don't have to point to things like, think of the starving kids in China. You can point to Christ. Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Only from John do we know that it was Jesus' idea to go gather them up. The other three accounts tell us that they gathered them up and had 12 baskets full left. Now, I want you to think for a minute about this miracle. So it's happened between here and here. They've sat down. Jesus prays. I don't know if I don't know if I mentioned that, but Jesus prays. Um, we see right here in verse 11. No. Yeah. He took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed those to those who, to those who were seated. In one or two of the other gospels, the disciples are involved. He's giving to the disciples who are going and giving to the crowds. So you've got these five loaves that were probably, you know, this size. And we're not talking monster loaves. And two small fish. And he's breaking the bread and handing it out. And I don't know how the fish are happening. Maybe he's cutting it into pieces. But he's handing that out. And it keeps coming. And it keeps coming. And the disciples are coming and getting a little bit. You know, did he give them a, just a little portion? He's got to split five among 12 disciples. Less, less, less than half loaves per, less than half a loaf per disciple. And it's growing. And it just keeps coming. And it keeps coming. And it feeds 5,000 men plus all the women and children that were there. And it feeds them till they're full. Now, did they just not have much appetite and didn't eat much food? I'm thinking they needed more food than normal because they had run around this top end of the Sea of Galilee. And then they, they hadn't eaten all day long. It's in the evening. He feeds them till they're full. Just it keeps coming and coming and coming. Amazing. So what can we learn from Jesus feeding the multitude? Not from John, but from those other accounts. Ministry is tiring. Sometimes you need to get away. That's a valid thing to take from here. But sometimes even when you're trying to get away, (laughs) your best laid plans don't happen the way you thought. Ministry opportunities are sometimes unpredictable. Now, two things about this word ministry. I don't want you to think I'm not in ministry, so this doesn't apply to me. You could substitute in there, 
opportunities to love someone, opportunities to serve someone. In fact, yeah, I have a sub-bullet. Opportunities to love or serve others are sometimes unexpected. The second thing about ministry is ministry is not just for pastors. Ministry is not just for elders. Ministry is not just for teachers. Colossians 4 tells us that, that apostles, what are they? Apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. All of us have ministry to do. Or if you're hung up on ministry being a professional word, all of us have service to do for the Lord in furthering his kingdom. Joe, in your testimony this morning, you're talking about these opportunities you're having to talk to people about Christ and to help them be free from their burdens. That is ministry. But again, if ministry sounds professional and you have a negative reaction to it, substitute in serving the Lord. Perfectly good thing to do. But when the opportunities come, we need to take advantage of them. We don't know when an opportunity is going to be just ripe in front of us. When it's there, we need to seize it. And Jesus' example, by the way, is what I point to for both of those. Uh, A third thing is that Jesus tests his disciples while involved in ministry. I mentioned that uh, earlier. I think for us, we, we need to not... Remembering this can help us to not have a negative reaction when we, um, when when Jesus is teaching us something in the middle of what we thought we were doing a good thing, and suddenly we're being taught. So we should expect it. Here's a good one, comes out of verse eleven. We should thank God for our food, and if possible, do it before you eat it. Kids, if you ever wonder, why do we need to thank God for our food in the Bible? This is the biblical text for it. Jesus thanks, gives thanks for the food and then starts passing it out. All right. Jesus has power to create food. This is the big one. If we think back through the Bible, um, God has the power to create food. He's the creator of all things. So all the food that we eat ultimately is coming from him. It's his creation. He's made it in a way where where you can grow things and, you know, uh, harvest it, cook it, eat it. We don't think of that as miraculous. Maybe we should because it all started in a miraculous way that he set that up. But if we think of things that clearly are miracles in the Bible, we have God providing the manna for the people of Israel. In the 40 years in the wilderness, that's a miracle because it wasn't for everybody across the earth. And it was only for 40 years. And when they didn't need it anymore, it went away. And I think of Elijah with the widow and the jar of uh, oil and the grain and how that just keeps going the whole time that the that the um, um, the famine was in place until the rain came. And so. um Jesus has the power to create food, and that should energize us for believing that he has the power to give eternal life. I talked earlier about why does John, um, I threw out the question, why does John wait, why does John go from chapter 5 into this account and doesn't cover other things that have happened? John is on message to help us remember, well, do I have it? I don't, I don't have it at this point. It's coming later. But John is on message 
about Jesus being the Son of God and that being the key point. And in the prior chapter, he's talked about equality with God, about authority to resurrect the dead and give them life, and about authority to judge, things that only God does. And I think John puts these two miracles immediately after. They are after it in time order, but with a gap in time. And he puts them here to drive home. These are evidences. These are signs so that you can believe that this is the Son of God who has the authority to give eternal life. Okay, walking on the water, just to go through this real quick. We have three witnesses here. Um, Luke does not cover it. The setting is it's immediately after feeding the multitude. The people want to make Jesus their king. That's interesting. Why do they want to make Jesus king? They want to be fed. They don't want to have to go out and find their own food. But Jesus wants to be alone on the mountain. I I think what he ultimately does this evening, where he gets time alone on the mountain in prayer, that's probably what he was looking for back when they first departed the other side in the boat. So Matthew and Mark tell us that. The disciples leave in a boat without Jesus. Why would they leave without Jesus? Here's where we need the other witnesses. This seems really weird. Why would he leave without Jesus? Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. An emphasis on made. I, I can picture to the disciples, Lord, what do you mean you're sending us away? Why, why, why? Don't know if he gave them the why, but he made them get in the boat and leave and go back to Capernaum. So the crossing, it's dark, it's at night, great wind was blowing. Uh, Matthew says, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Mark says they were straining, rowing. Uh, this word tossed uh, at, can also mean tortured. It's translated as tortured other places in the New Testament. And so the boat was being tortured by the waves or battered by the waves. And they're three to four miles into this crossing by the time Jesus comes to them. They're headed towards Capernaum. Okay, so the walking, when Jesus comes on the water, it's during 3 to 6 a.m. We know this from Matthew and Mark because they say in about the fourth watch. And the fourth watch was 3 to 6 a.m. So we're talking the, the late hours of the night as you're going towards morning. Jesus comes walking on the sea and he's coming to them, drawing nearer. From Matthew and Mark, we know that they're scared. Actually, John says that they're frightened, verse 19. So it's important to note, they're not frightened by the winds. There's a different account, a different thing that happens, a different event where Jesus falls asleep in the boat with them, and they're in, a storm comes up, a raging storm. And these, where about half of them are experienced seamen, they're scared to death, along with the landlubbers in their group. Uh, But that's not what's going on here. We're not told that they were scared by the winds at all. They were having to work extra hard. It was slowing them down. They weren't making good progress because the wind was in their face. But they get scared when they see Jesus coming. They think it's a ghost. Jesus calls out to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter then walks on the water too. Don't have time to go into that, but that's in Matthew's account. Jesus gets into the boat. Peter gets into it too. And then the wind stops. Mark says immediately the wind stops. And then they arrive immediately at the land to which they were going, which would be Capernaum. So that's the the walking on the water and that crossing. What do we learn from Jesus walking on the water? Well, there are critics of all of these miracles. 
And the critics of this miracle want to say that, oh, he was walking in the shallows. He was walking on a sandbar. And they're totally ignoring... Totally ignoring the actual text. I show you here, two and a half miles from this El Araj location to Capernaum. That you have to come down the coast to about here to get a four-mile chunk. John says it's three to, they're three to four miles into the trip. I think uh, uh, Matthew and Mark say something like that, too. So they're closer to Capernaum. They're getting close there, which could explain how they arrive pretty quickly as soon as he gets in the boat. But Jesus has to somehow go from here to there. And I don't think he hot-footed it around here to meet them on the shore when they got there. He came across the water. Most of us, if we walk at a, good, at a decent clip, can do four miles in an hour. Either Jesus did some kind of God, just teleport thing, land right behind them, and then start walking. That'd be a miracle too, right? Or he came down the mountain from praying... And he walked for an hour across the waves to catch up with, um, across the water to catch up with them. This is an unbelievable miracle. Of course, all the miracles are unbelievable. That's why they're miracles, right? But this defies physics, gravity, so many things. And so it just makes me think of several other verses about things being impossible. Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Luke one thirty seven. the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary says, For with God, nothing will be impossible. Jesus himself, when the, um, when the rich young ruler comes to him and then leaves, because he values all his riches and doesn't want to give them up, and the disciples talk about how it's, if he can't come to Christ, he can't believe in making it in the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible for anybody. Jesus' response is, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So when we're faced by John, a witness, and all these other witnesses, Matthew and Mark also describing something that's impossible, those three verses point us to concluding that Jesus must be God. He's the Son of God. Because he's doing the impossible. Matthew 9, 33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What we should be concluding here is what they concluded. That's, is Matthew 9, 33 is the same account. That's the end of Matthew's account of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. So Jesus also has power to give eternal life. It points Both of them point me back to the same conclusion that had come out of chapter 5. John wants us to know this is the Son of God. He can give you eternal life. Just as bread is something you need physically for us in our modern world, substitute food in place of bread. But Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus, gives them what they need for physical life, but that's to illustrate how he has the power to give what we need for spiritual life. And that's what John's point is at the end of his book, close to the end, John 20. This is after Jesus' resurrection, before the wrap-up in chapter 21 with the disciples. But John, speaking to us, the readers, says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing 
you may have life in his name. So, is your confidence in Christ? When you run into difficulties, is he the one that you call out to? Or is your confidence in something else? Do you pray as if nothing is impossible for Jesus? In Sunday school this morning, we talked about praying intercessorily for other people. Boy, these miracles of Christ where he can do the impossible should affect our prayer lives. Of course, we think that God can intervene and do things to help us or we would not pray. But do you really think of it as he can do the impossible? And what that leads me to is, what are you trusting God for that's really big? I think it's good for us at every point in our life, think of this year, this season, this few months, to have at least one thing we're praying that if God were to do it, it just hands down would be a God thing. There'd be no denying it. I mean, we pray for people to get well when they have sicknesses. And I believe when I pray that and they get well, God was involved. He did it. Even if doctors and medicine were also involved, he let them get well. But that's not something that other people hearing me tell them that would necessarily think that was impossible. There's things we can pray where when God does it, you yourself are going to note it. This is just flat out impossible, and God did it. It may be somebody in your life who just is a hardened skeptic rejecting the Bible. He's read it, knows about it, and rejects it flat out. And you're praying that God would cause them to have a change of heart and come to Christ. For for you, you're at a point where that would be a miracle if that guy ever turns and comes to Christ. Well, then pray it. (laughs) Pray something like that. But there could be other things. We, we think, we elders, and some of you, I think, think we could use a new facility. When we look at our budget, that, that's a long stretch. But if God wants us to have that, he can provide it. Um, just all kinds of things. You, you, can have, you can have a relationship that is just so busted that you're, you're ready to give up on it. You prayed, maybe you prayed about it before. But I challenge you, I challenge you in the circumstances in your life to leave room for God to work. And the way you do that is by praying, praying big things. And then last, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore the way you act? Let me close this in prayer and then we'll sing a song. Father, I thank you for this passage. Lord Jesus, I praise you as king of kings. You are the king. The people wanted to make you king. Not for the right reasons. But you are king because the Father has given all authority to you. And you are the God who created the heavens and the earth. And we praise you as that. Help us, Lord, to trust you for big things. To pray that way and to live that way. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.